Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tammy Vihill, who is the author of Moms in Chief, The Rhetoric of Republican Motherhood and the Spouses of Presidential Nominees, 1992 to 2016. This book was published in 2019 by the University Press of Kansas and is a really interesting exploration of presidential spouses, particularly on the campaign trail and at the conventions, and why we should pay attention to both the winning and the losing candidate and their spouse. Um, But I'm going to let Tammy tell us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to invite Tammy to, to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this really interesting project. Hello, Tammy. Hello, Lily, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, so Moms in Chief was as a project that's been going on that I've been working on for a few years now. It started when I was working on uh, my first solo authored book called Connecting with Constituents that looked at uh, convention speeches and it looked at all of the different kinds of genres of convention speeches. Who's speaking and why are they speaking? So keynote addresses, uh, vice presidential uh, nominees addresses and all of those kinds of different categories. And the one category that had come up as being a relatively new one uh, was the spouse's speech. It wasn't until 1992 that they had started to become regular features at uh, conventions. And it became really interesting to me thinking about the role of spouses in campaigns, the ways the press looked at them, the parties. And I started to sort of poke around after doing a chapter about their speeches. I started to poke around a little bit more into them as uh, as as campaign campaigners themselves, how they were used or not used uh, in different kinds of settings. And so I realized there's a lot of stuff that's been done in recent years about first ladies, sitting first ladies or first ladies as campaigners, but not really much about the spouses of nominees, even though they are some of the most high profile women, most of the time women. We now have the addition of Bill Clinton as the first male spouse of a nominee. uh, But the, uh, they're some of the most high-profile women in campaigns. They get uh, looked at by the press, they get poked at by the parties, uh, and they get used by the campaigns in interesting kinds of ways. So I thought, let's explore that a little bit more um, and see if there's something there. So I did a journal article on it, on their speeches as well, um, and just kind of looking at how they express themselves in uh, what's called the feminine style. And then I uh, and then that turned into something much bigger because I just kept finding more and more really interesting stuff about them and kept thinking, why isn't anybody saying anything about this? Why isn't anybody writing about this? Because there's a lot of uh, gender implications to what's going on with them, how they're treated, how they treat themselves or portray themselves. Um, And so that's where the, the sort of roots of this book began. Um, And as I started really digging in, I started seeing that there were these patterns that were emerging. Um, And the best theoretical conception of the pattern that I kept seeing over and over again is this idea called uh, the Republican motherhood. And so Republican motherhood, as it says in the title, 
uh, is often a little bit uh, of a of a tricky phrasing because a lot of people automatically think that it's the party uh, that right. I referred to, and it's not <laughs> exactly. So so anyway, so that that's basically where the book started, uh, or the idea for the book started uh, was looking at uh, how how these women start are treated and, and what are the expectations related to them in terms of their gender roles and whether or not they embrace or contest traditional perspectives on femininity and, and sex roles. And so as long as you brought it up, yeah. <laughs> um, shall we have a little bit of a discussion about what this term Republican motherhood means, um, particularly in context of the United States? But of course, it goes back to Oh, I don't know. I think Pericles talks about it in Thucydides. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the idea of Republican motherhood, the, the phrase Republican motherhood is a scholarly term that uh, researchers put on to, ex- are, are used, used to explain a repeated rhetorical pattern that occurs when people talk about women at, as it pertains to politics. Um, and we see actually the roots of Republican motherhood back, you know, as, as far as you were saying, yes. <laughs> and also in, in terms of like, for example, uh, the Spartan mother, right? The idea of the Spartan mother is that women were participating in the polis by being good mothers, by being good wives, by uh, raising active and successful uh, contributors to the polis, particularly through their sons and teaching their daughters to raise children that were going to contribute to the polis as well in, in very uh, clear ways that were domestically driven. So women were participating through their domestic, in the polis or in the public sphere through their domestic feats. Um, and so what ends up happening is in the United States, when the country was first being uh, developed as a democratic republic, what happened was we had this this revolutionary war where uh, people were talking about, you know, fighting against uh, taxation without representation and saying we need to be able to be participants in our own government. Uh, we have the Revolutionary War where everybody's talking about being able to control your own government to be a participant and be represented in uh, in in all of the legislation. Uh, but really, what it ended up boiling down to was they were mostly talking about men. <laughs> uh, and so, when women started to say, "Hey, what about us?" after the Revolutionary War, because they started to, to see that a lot of the, the social restrictions that were placed on them were really just social. They were not allowed to, to uh, engage in business and things like that, not because they were unable to, but just simply because they never had before, because these social structures had been created. And so women started to push back and say, well, you know, if we're all supposed to be able to participate in this government, what about all of us? Can't we participate as well? And instead of actually giving women a role in government uh, or even mentioning them at all in any of our founding documents, what ended up happening was thought leaders of the time uh, sort of fell into this pattern of talking about women's contributions to the polis or to society or to the country, the new new nation, in terms of their the things they were already doing. So by taking care of the home, you were allowing the men to go, uh, you know, fight the wars, to go conquer new lands, to develop new governments. And so what the the language became, or there became one of women were doing a lot by being mothers and wives. 
And that was their major contribution. And so that wasn't asking women to do anything new and it wasn't giving women any new empowerment. But what it was doing was acknowledging women and women's work in a way that it hadn't really been previously acknowledged. So it gave a sense of empowerment without actually giving any power. And so the idea of Republican motherhood is this concept that it's it's a rhetorical trope that frames women's political contributions in terms of their domestic duties and their relationships to others. And so while it is a good thing because it acknowledges the work that women women have done, it's not necessarily a positive thing because it treats women as contingent second-class sorts of citizens dependent on others for uh, their power and their representation in government. It also limits women's perceived interests and skill sets uh, to being domestic and nurturing, and it encourages women to be self-sacrificing and not to seek uh, power empowerment for their, themselves. And it also shun, teaches women to shun uh, public ambition. So it's very much in keeping with the sort of historical role that women have often played in societies, which is not public, but in the private sphere. Right. And it also and, expects that women. Go ahead. I'm just saying it also it also teaches women to expect that that's the right way for them to be, uh, as opposed to that that they they might actually be full citizens themselves with their own rights to press their own interests. And and again, this is you know a lot of where we think about the the perception of women in the public sphere and how they have to present themselves and the the manner in which they do present themselves publicly is often in context, as you note in throughout the book, um, often in context of the expectations. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. And so you, you talk about the fact that um, women, the first spouses or the potential first spouses um, have a variety of roles, but you're looking particularly at their role Um, during the primary and the conventions and the convention speeches. And I learned much from your book about who hadn't, in fact, given speeches at conventions, (laughs) as well as who had. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit about this historical context, because I think this is really, really interesting. Um, And as you said, you sort of kept unearthing more and more sort of fascinating components to this, Um, that Eleanor Roosevelt was really kind of the first spouse Yes. So she was the first spouse to actually give a a spouse's address at a nominating convention. Uh, She did it in 1940 uh, for the DNC. She actually flew to Chicago to to, when uh, FDR's nomination was in doubt. They said, well, you know, we need to do something to secure this nomination. And so they flew her out and she gave a speech. And it's actually a fascinating speech because it's not at all like any of the contemporary spouse's speeches. Uh, the contemporary spouses' speeches do things like they talk about what a great father he is and what a what great characteristics he has to lead the country and talking about the, the potential president. And then the women also talk a lot about themselves, uh, framing themselves as mothers, as good wives. But with Eleanor Roosevelt in 1940, she did not mention the president by name. She didn't mention him by office. It was a very philosophically driven speech um, that really argued about what we need in leadership. And so it wasn't as overtly campaign 
like as the contemporary speeches are. So it's really a, a fascinating read. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in Eleanor Roosevelt or in, in presidential politics to read that speech because it's really fascinating. But you do say that, and then there's a big leap, mm-hmm. <laughs> a long period of time where we we don't have, now sort of be, uh, sort of come to expect as the norm in terms of a spousal address at the at the conventions. Can you talk a little bit about why 1992 is kind of the the starting point in lots of ways for your analysis, and what happened at that point and moving forward? Sure. So you're right. There was a big gap. In 1940, Eleanor Roosevelt spoke, and then there was not another plan prepared speech by a spouse of a nominee again until 1992 when Barbara Bush addressed the uh, the RNC. Uh, and in between, there were a few th- places where like sitting first ladies would stand up and receive uh, accolades or say a couple of words during a convention. But it really wasn't, uh, there was no cons- actual planned speech until 1992, which was also, um, I think, one of the earlier times when people would talk about the year of the woman. It was a campaign or a, a campaign year when there were a lot, a lot more women running for Senate and Congress than had been before. Um, and so there was a lot of attention being paid to female candidates and what people were calling female issues or women's issues. Um, the, the idea of women running for office uh, had come up in some of the presidential debates and things like that. And of course, Hillary Clinton had been very a very vocal spouse during the primary uh, primary contest, and then also uh, a little bit less so during the general election. But during the primary, she was very active, and there was a lot of conversation about a potential co presidency between her and Bill if he were to win. Um, and so. What happened was that there was sort of a push on the Republican side uh, to have Barbara Bush, who was extremely well liked, lend some of her likability to her husband. And to do that, she needed to speak more publicly. And so she showed up on the campaign trail a few more times, but she gave the first contemporary uh, speech by the spouse of a presidential nominee at the RNC. Hillary Clinton did not speak on in 1992 to the DNC because they were worried the campaigners were our campaign was worried that it would reignite issues about her being too pushy or too aggressive and that the idea of the co-presidency would come up again. And so but but from uh, Barbara Bush's speech forward, it has been expected that the spouses say or do something at the conventions. And all of them have, except for Tipper Gore, who in uh, 2000 did a, a recorded speech as opposed to an actual speech itself, where she showed pictures from their family and those kinds of things. Um, but she stood there and she introduced the uh, videotaped presentation, um, but she didn't actually give deliver her own full speech there. Otherwise, all, all of the other spouses have. And so you you pay attention in the book not only to as you, you sort of we talk about the the person who becomes the first lady or who is the first lady, um, but also the spouse who is on the losing side. Um, and you, you make a sort of argument for why we should pay attention to both the winning and the losing um, spouse and 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 how they operate um, within the campaign. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so when I was taking a look at this, I, first of all, the, the overall structure of the book kind of made sense to be able to go campaign by campaign. It just sort of logically made sense to me that that 
so that we could see if there was any uh, shift over time in the way that these women portrayed themselves or were portrayed by the press or the parties. Um, and But it made a lot more sense to me to do both spouses than to just do the winning spouse. First of all, because the winning spouse becomes eventually becomes the first lady or the spouse of the winning nominee, I should say, <laughs> uh, becomes the, the, the first lady. And usually there's a lot more to be written about first ladies. And we tend to kind of forget about the fact that there were these other women that were big parts of the campaign. And I was also interested to see if there was any uh, difference in how the women were treated. Were both women treated the same way each time? Were the expectations the same or different? Um, and how did they respond to the expectations? And how did that affect the way that people looked at, at each person? And so I thought that by looking at the uh, at both the winning and the losing person, we first of all expand out the the, the number of women who are being portrayed and talked about. And I think that's really important. And then secondly, also be we're also able to, to see the consistency of the pattern that happens uh, and how people can, and you have more people reacting to that pattern. So for example, if we don't look at the uh, candidates the, the, of losing spouses, then we miss out on people like Elizabeth Dole and uh, Teresa Hines Carey, who are, really interesting women in their own right and don't really get talked about as much as they probably should because they get dismissed as the losing candidate's spouse as opposed to being really examined for their own uh, skills, abilities, the ways in which they embraced or pushed back at the expectations placed around them. And and so in, in examining these sort of dualities or these, these sort of dyads, um, what did you find in terms of understanding the role of women in politics? Because this is a kind of weird position of women in politics. Yeah, it is kind of an odd, uh, odd position to be in because on the one hand, they are being uh, looked at and included in the campaigns because they're wives. So in the one hand, you're sort of saying, well, okay, so Republican motherhood kind of makes sense because they're there because they're wives and their spouses. Um, but really what ends up happening is I find that there's this repeated expectation that whoever the spouse of a potential president is, that they embrace very conservative, very customary uh, approaches to gender roles. And if they don't do that, then they become shunned and, and objects of criticism, both in the press by, and by the parties. And so when women dare to go beyond just sort of saying, I'm the good wife and smile and, and wave behind their, uh, their husbands, their successful husbands, uh, they, they tend to be punished verbally uh, and, and in different kinds of ways by the press and the parties in ways that encourages the next set of women to really engage in a much more conservative approach to, to womanhood and to just expressions of femaleness. And what that does is that then restricts the way that we get to see iconic women as women, full, full, fully formed. We end up having these sort of caricatures uh, where they're just happy wives and good mothers, and that's it. And we don't get to really talk about all of the other aspects of womanhood, all of the other interests that they might have. So for example, one of the things that I found in the repeated, uh, in, in all of the different campaigns, was that these women only get asked questions about things like 
parenting. They get asked questions about things like healthcare, things that are traditionally considered feminine topics or topics related to the home and family. And these women are usually very intelligent and and ex- have broader experiences than that. And so they get cut down from being full citizens that can should be able to talk about a variety of issues to simply being mommies and wives. And, and there's nothing wrong with being a mother. I want to make sure that I'm clear on that. I'm not trying to say that that's a bad thing. It's just that to get isolated down to just one or two parts of your character discounts all of the other things they've done. For example, Elizabeth Dole was once the Secretary of Labor. She was once the Secretary of Transportation. She was she sat on two different presidents' uh, cabinets. And when she talked about anything other than Bob Dole's personality or her work at the Red Cross, people shunned what she was saying. Um, and they didn't give her the credibility that she actually had to talk about a broader wealth of topics. And so even as a surrogate for her husband or as a surrogate candidate, any other surrogate candidate gets to have a wider range of interests than the spouse seems to. And I think that's extremely limiting for women, especially since these are often the most visible women in a campaign. And that, I mean, that's sort of so disconcerting in lots of ways. Also, as you say, it kind of limits the individual to just one dimension. Right. And, and, you know, as you say, Libby Dole, who was a cabinet secretary, you also have, obviously, individuals like Michelle Obama um, and, and Teresa Hines Carey, um, who all had significant careers. Right. right. Um, and, and roles, to some, not necessarily in politics, but certainly significant careers. And then they find themselves in, in a kind of weird box. Absolutely. That's, that's constructed by the campaign. It's constructed by expectations. And so I was curious about what you sort of indicate also is when when the first spouse or when the spousal candidate pushes beyond their brief, <laughs> that there is a backlash yes. that makes it even more difficult. Can you talk a little bit about how what you found in your research in this regard? Sure. Well, I think the, and this is why I think 1992 is, is uh, also a good starting point is because Hillary Clinton was well known for having done exactly that, speaking beyond the brief in 1992. Um, and she was so soundly uh, criticized for that by, uh, across a lot of different media, because a lot of folks say, oh, the liberal media or the conservative media, across basically all platforms, she was uh she was, she, well, there was a, a moment, and I know most people actually know this moment pretty well, where she had been chastised for having stayed in her legal profession after her husband had become governor of Arkansas and after she had had Chelsea. And she, they kept asking her about why'd she do that? Why'd she do that? And she made a sort of glib offhand comment that where she said something like, I, uh, I, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but I decided to, um, uh, to pursue my or fulfill my profession. And then after that, she explained how she thought all women should be able to make their own choices. She, you know, she really actually is speaking very eloquently in support of all women's choices, whether it's to be a stay at home mom, a working mom, a not a mom at all. But the press just kept replaying that little bit about staying home and baking cookies. And they replayed it so often that 
there were polls out about how many Americans thought she actually hated and despised homemakers, even though she actually had said a lot in support of them. Um, And so then it became such a big thing and such a big point of criticism. And there was so many concerns that she was going to actually destroy Bill's chances of winning the presidency that she basically made this big about face. She spent her time at the convention actually handing out home-baked cookies <laughs> instead of, of giving a speech. She started showing up more where uh, in, in places with uh, Chelsea instead of just by herself. And she started talking about things in terms of her being a mother rather than simply as a person, as a knowledgeable person. Um, and so her about face was something that a, a lot of other women have also done who have been in that kind of a position. Uh, but it also became a point of question where people started criticizing her then too about whether or not she was authentic. You know, who is the authentic Hillary Clinton? And all of that follows her through 1996. And then all the way into 2016, we see that in the 2016 campaign, when Bill talks about Hillary and tries to talk about her as a mother, uh, when she talks about herself in terms of, a, of motherhood. And so that kind of thing sort of tracked her for a very long time, that problem. And But even bigger than that was Hillary became the sort of anti-woman, where in, for example, uh, the 2000 election, people actually praised Tipper Gore and Laura Bush for having been the anti-Hillary, or I think there was one uh, person who phrased it, or one uh, journalist who phrased it, the, uh, the antidote for Hillary fatigue. And so women started becoming praised for not being like Hillary Clinton because Hillary had been so outspoken and uh, first, honestly, a a shorter amount of time than most people remember. Uh, But, but still they became, it became a a sort of badge of honor to not be like Hillary. Um, And then that happened again with Teresa Hines Carey, where people would complain because she had her own staff. And that was kind of an ironic uh, complaint because they said, how can she be a first lady, you know, if she needs her own staff just to be a candidate's wife, uh, when in fact, the first lady has her own staff, she has the whole office of the first lady. So that seemed like a weird criticism, but people still made that criticism. They said, oh, she had too much power. She was too dominant. She was too controlling. She talked too much about women's rights, uh, which she did talk about, but not as much as people sort of made out to be. Um, so yeah, so, so then you get this, again, a powerful woman who was not about muting herself. So, you know, Teresa Hines Carey became another icon of the not so ladylike potential first lady. Um, and every time we get those women who are being chastised for being something other than a wife and mother, for showing a broader sense of interest, we end up having the problem of the next go round or the future first lady, future spouses of nominees, learning from that and making adjustments earlier and earlier to their own and and quieting their own additional interests and perspectives. Uh, For example, you know, we see uh, Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama, you know, and she's super popular and everybody likes her and I like her. Uh, But one of the things that happened to Michelle Obama very early on in Barack's run for the presidency in 2008 is that she embraces the every mom role and she downplays her work and her education. So she doesn't ignore it, but she doesn't really tout it in a way that that you might expect from someone who was as accomplished as she was. 
And instead, she played up more of the good wife and good and great mother kind of role. And so I have a question in terms of the research also. Do you find a distinction in terms of the reception of Republican spouses versus Democratic spouses? Um, as far as a, a distinction in reception of them, it's, it's kind of interesting. I was a little um, surprised because I, just thinking about the, the touted philosophies of the two parties, you would assume that the Democrats would be more embracing of a wider range of representation of fe- femaleness and the femininity. Um, but in fact, there's still an expectation that those spouses embrace more customary kinds of roles. Uh, the Republicans, on the other hand, they're, they're very consistent. It's always very much about a customary position. Uh, in fact, I think Elizabeth Dole caused them a little bit of problem because she was not as conventional as pretty much every other uh, Republican spouse uh, that shows up in the book. Um, but she, uh, but, but she also embraced the idea of, of, you know, being the good wife and touting, touting her husband so much so that when she ran for president, uh, later people actually credited her popularity to being Bob Dole's wife in, during the 1996, uh, campaign, as opposed to, you know, all of the other things that she had done, uh, during, throughout her career. So that was a little bit disheartening, but with the Republicans, they tend to have that they tend to frame the spouses in very consistent ways that are consistent with their ideology. With the Democrats, they speak about a broader acceptance, but always seem to then go back to this narrow approach. Uh, and they use as a party, they tend to use criticisms or critiques of Republican spouses in the in a very similar way that Republicans use critiques of Democratic spouses. Uh, but they're really awkward in the way the Democrats are really awkward in the way that they try to apply Republican motherhood because they both try to embrace it and critique it at the same time. Um, so it's really it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they're not very good at it. Republicans, it's much more consistent with their ideology. So they apply it much more effectively and much more consistently. So in going through the various um, spouse spouses and their and, and and aspirational spouses. What was surprising to you that you found in going through the speeches and their conduct on the campaign trail and so forth? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, surprising was the consistency. Like I expected that there'd be a lot more variety or variation like that, especially with the Democratic, the spouses of the Democratic nominees, that there might be more pushback but I think because of the uh, aggressiveness with which they're punished, if they do push back against the expectations, that they they don't push back nearly as often as, as expected. Um, so th- I think that was really the most surprising thing. I, I was kind of thinking, oh, there'll be this trend. And over time, there'll be these shifts in the ways the women embrace or contest the, the sort of good wife role. And it's not. It hasn't really shifted very much. The biggest shift that I found was that, you know, um, I think Michelle Obama is pro- was embraced as being a uh, a working mom, like sort of the the classic, I think nineteen nineties six ninety eight ish 
realm of the uh, the soccer mom idea. Okay. Where it's, I have a great career, but it's really all about my family. So she kind of got to embrace that where, whereas Hillary Clinton during that time frame was actually the embodiment of what people would call the soccer mom and she was chastised for it. But it took that long between, uh, you know, about the 2016, or sorry, 19, <laughs> sorry, the 1996 campaign and around the, the 2012 campaign, it took that long for us to be able to say, oh yeah, a working mom is okay in the White House as, as part of this, uh, as, as a spouse of a nominee. Uh, but even at that, it was after Michelle Obama had suspended her career and had been in the White House for a while that people started to say, oh yeah, that's okay. And so it's very slow moving, that trend. Um, and I expected that that would be a lot, a lot, a, a a faster move, like our reflections of womanhood and what women actually experience would have been more up to date, but they really aren't. So, <laughs> and, and so that, I mean, that, that's a really fascinating sort of conundrum in that the, the expectations and, and the lived realities of so many women in the United States is that many of us are working moms. Yeah. Um, but that we expect, interestingly enough, the spouse, the wife, to still of the, of the president or the candidate to still inhabit this kind of much more traditional, as you say, sort of Republican motherhood ideal. And so it's a disconnection from many of our lived realities. Absolutely. And I think that does a disservice to women everywhere um, because it really sort of, because people still think about the first lady as sort of this idealized version of American womanhood or a representation of American womanhood, which is why people get upset when they don't behave the way that we think they should as representatives of, you know, what what we think the ideal should be, which I think explains a lot of why people get a little upset about Melania Trump. But um, part of the problem is that, that we also then force them to be caricatures of women as opposed to actually embracing their full complexities as individuals. And so that it really does create a conundrum in terms of what we think women should be, what we think we as women think we should be and what we expect of each other. Because one of the big things that happens when we keep pushing women into this box of, you know, your political interests or your political uh, power is really related to, being a mother and a wife, if we keep doing that, we keep creating these limited conversations of women, period, but of women and politics. So women, for example, and I talk about this a bit in chapter one, you know, when we talk about women's health, almost, I mean, we talk a little bit about a few other things sometimes, but we almost always immediately go to reproductive questions. And that, and women's health is really is is part part of that is reproductive health but and reproductive decision making but there's so much more to women and women's health and it gets ignored oftentimes because it's always coming back to are they producing new patriots who's in control of their choices re- regarding you know the the who gets to be born and things like that and so it really isolates women down into to just very particular small parts as opposed to the wealth of who we actually are as people, as individuals, as autonomous beings. And so we have, we do have this sort of weird projection onto the first spouse. Yeah. 
um, of this ideal that that's also really disconnected from most of how people live their lives. Right. Um, and so I, I, I also wanted to ask you and you brought it up that, that Melania Trump is, is kind of not come sort of comporting herself exactly in context. Is that correct? Yeah, she's, uh, it's kind of interesting because with Melania during the campaign as a, as a spouse of a nominee, she was what you could argue was basically the full embodiment of Republican motherhood. She was, she, she was self-sacrificing. She gave up, you know, her privacy in order to, you know, cause when her husband ran, she has always been sort of touting her motherhood role as being the most important thing. She didn't, she said she wasn't going to move to DC until after uh, the school year had ended because she was taking care of her son and wanted him to finish his school year. So that's like a real embracing of the motherhood role. Um, she's really kind of was an, an, an ultra embrace of Republican motherhood. And, st- and she got punished for that. People said right. she was not speaking up enough that she's not an embodiment of American womanhood because she was not showing her own empowerment. And so there's sort of a weird irony. And I think with Melania Trump, what we see in the campaign itself is um, that she she was almost the extreme embodiment so much that people started saying, wait a minute, do we really want women to be just a, a prop on a stage? And so in that case, it's kind of an interesting, yes, you know, good way to go. We're making change because we don't like that. On the other hand, you know, since she's been in office or she's been in the White House, it's always tricky because, you know, the first ladyship is not an official office. But since she's been in the White House, she has actually done a lot of the things that other first ladies have done. But she's not getting the same kind of traction for it in the ways that others have. You know, she's visited with victims after hurricanes or after mass shootings. She tried to donate blood after the the Las Vegas shooting. She's, you know, she's actually been doing a lot of support of opioid research and opioid addiction. And, and very little of that is getting as much coverage as a lot of the other things that prior first ladies have have done. And so I think that's kind of an interesting uh, problem in terms of, you know, why don't we why don't we pay attention to her? Is it that we don't like her? Is it that we don't like her husband? There's a whole lot of other questions that are kind of popping up with her now as she's actually in the White House. Um, and and she may also be somewhat overshadowed by the constancy yes. of her husband. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he sucks up so much of the media attention and media energy. He, he just sort of takes all the air out of any room. And so it's really hard for her to, to gain, gain traction. But, you know, there's another book chapter that I just finished writing for somebody else where talk about media relations. And, and I wrote a lot about how her media relations team is more dedicated to him, which is unusual for first ladies team. First ladies teams are usually related to first ladies and, and put them first, whereas her team was definitely not that way. So it's kind of interesting. As, that's as so problem. much in the, in the, the Trump white house, it's, it's not the way it used to be. In lots true. Of ways. <laughs> Very true. Um, so, so is there another project that you're following this with? Uh, what are you working on now? Yeah. So that's an excellent question. Um, what ended up happening odd, oddly enough, or luckily enough was as I was shopping out the moms in chief book, I got an, an offer from another uh, publisher to write a book for them about Melania Trump and Michelle Obama. 
And so like a compare and contrast to their first lady. And so that book actually comes out on September 1st. So that's. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That was fast work. Yeah. It was a little crazy because, you know, this moms in chief came out in January. Now September, uh, Melania and Michelle comes out. And, uh, and then another, as I just mentioned, uh, I was asked to write a chapter on Melania Trump for a book on first modern first ladies and media relations. Um, and so that's, that's, so I've been sort of in that realm for a while now, the, the, the for, a, a little more first ladies, although I'm really still looking forward to the next, this, this uh, election cycle to 2020 and see what happens with the new spouses and see if there's perhaps another, another male spouse to add to, to this study that I, and, and continue on the moms in chief look. Well, there are at least a couple of male spouses on the campaign trail at this point. So, yes, we've got um, a couple of them, and we'll see how it moves forward. Though we'll see what, how it progresses, but it might be an interesting thing to take a look at because right now, the only male spouse we have, I have in my uh, stack here, is Bill Clinton, and he's a unique spouse because having been a, a past president, he there are expectations of him that would be different than a, a what might be considered a normal male spouse. So it'd be interesting to see how this turns out. And I think that's that's where my next project is probably going to go is to see, you know, how the men are being, how the male spouses of female candidates are treated, at least in this first round. We'll see how far they go and see how much there is to actually explore about them. But I think that could give some interesting insights as to whether or not we're sticking to the same old narratives and we're just applying them onto the men, whether or not we're expecting the men to uphold more traditional masculine standards of behavior or how we're going to negotiate the shifting uh, gender roles that are occurring in politics. So. And, and just to, you know, add a little bit more um, complication to that, you also have Pete Buttigieg's husband as well. Oh yeah. So, so Which is totally <laughs> fascinating because I, at least in some of the early reporting on uh, Chastin Buttigieg, uh, he was actually, he's been treated and talked about a, in ways that are very similar to the ways that these female spouses have been talked about. And so I think that's kind of a fascinating uh, element to take a look at too. As opposed to Elizabeth Warren's husband or Kamala Harris's husband yep. and so forth. Yeah. Or, um, you know, the candidates themselves, how they're, they're talking about themselves. And yeah. So it's kind of interesting. There's a, a lot to be explored. <laughs> so when that project is done, will you come and talk to us about it on the new books network? Oh, absolutely. Happy to. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tammy. Glad we got to talk about Moms in Chief, the rhetoric of Republican motherhood and the spouses of presidential nominees 1992 to 2016. This is by Tammy Vigil, that's spelled V-I-G-I-L. And that is from the University Press of Kansas 2019. Um, Any place anybody can pick up a copy of this book. Well, they certainly can order it off the University Press of Kansas uh, website. That's probably going to be the easiest place to, to grab a copy. Uh, as far as on shelves, I know there are a couple of, of Barnes and Nobles where it's been located. But uh, other than that, I'm, uh, I think it's usually more of a special order off the, uh, from the, the university site. Got it. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thank you so much, Lily, for having me. My pleasure. <laughs>